Hello. In today's episode of FOMO Foundation, I chat with Patrick Bobelin. Uh, Patrick is a former public school teacher, current organizer on the east side of Manhattan, and also he is running for New York State Assembly. Uh, he's run in the past up against a pretty big incumbent, a very powerful person, and he's not done. He's going to run again. Uh, and I picked his brain on New York City politics and progressive politics in general. Hope you enjoy. I've been, uh, you know, interested in politics my whole life, but sort of from the um, more punk rock, uh, you know, sort of distrust and, you know, critical of a dysfunctional system. Uh, And after a lot of years of banging my head against the walls of various institutions, whether it was the arts institution, uh, the entertainment industry, um, you know, the arts industry and, you know, different other avenues, I realized that so much of what I was critical of and so much of what I was obsessed with was founded in political dysfunction. You know, all the all the time I was working in the arts, I was involved in, you know, protesting and, and movement work. And uh, at some point, I, I realized that there weren't enough people who felt, um, you know, that they could be part of the change uh, within the system. I mean, I'm still skeptical, that's true. Uh, I ran for city council in 2017. It was my first time ever running. I was super naive and, you know, wasted a lot of my own very low uh, funds in my savings account uh, to do so. But it was a learning experience. And then last year uh, in my neighborhood on the Upper East Side, we had a, um, we still have uh, an incumbent um, who was, who voted against um, a lot of the um, necessary changes in policing that were required after the murder of George Floyd, and who also she also failed to like get herself on the Democratic ballot, meaning that um, she was going to have to run an independent run, and that yeah. would greatly diminish her assumed uh, presence as our assumed candidate. And so I decided to run an insurgent independent run, and we were there was more of an equal footing. And I found there was a lot of support, so much support that she's, her campaign spent about a half a million dollars to drag me through court and prove that I was um, one month shy of a five-year uh, residency in New York, even though I'm a born and raised New Yorker. Oh, wow. You know, they, they managed to, to bang it out in court over the course of a couple of months. Uh, why state over city? A lot of our, in the 70s, we handed over a lot of the control of our MTA of our housing uh, laws and a a lot of our budget lines um, over to state control. That's why we have to worry about Andrew Cuomo and not Bill de Blasio when it comes to our MTA. That's why Cuomo could shut down the overnight service of the MTA, despite pleas from city officials and our mayor, et cetera. Um, Wow, that's interesting. Do you you know the reasoning behind all that? Um, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was, it was a deal, right? So it yeah. was an uh, exchange for some, you know, increase in the budget, in, increased power over uh, the budget. They got the actual hands uh, on control of the, the levers. They got, they got more money, but they got less power. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this was, I don't, I don't know all the details. It was sadly before I was born. Uh, but yeah, over the course of many you know, decades, many administrations have handed more and more power over to the state. So a lot of our dysfunction is controlled at the state level by the state budget. 
Um, state also has the power to create something akin to a statewide Medicare for all. Uh, there's a bill right now that's you know, sort of been languishing for years called the New York State Health Act. It could create something like Medicare for all for all New Yorkers, uh, regardless of the documentation, etc. Wow. Uh, and you know, the, the what a lot of these items. There's a lot of great legislation kicking around, but what they're missing is organizing, and um, that's my specialty: is is organizing people and organizing efforts and empowering people and and you know, getting people to feel like they have a voice and to you know help them to demand it. Um, yeah, I remember being really influenced by like this uh, book, Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. Uh, the whole idea of community organizing and empowering people to empower themselves has always been uh, an important idea for me, both like on an interpersonal level and a political level. What are the most like common ways you see that being done, I guess, in your neighborhood? Um, well, I'd say, you know, a good organizer would make themselves replaceable right. um, and they would expand the base rather than sort of centralizing power. Uh, they would expand the roles and they would make sure, you know, one of the differences between managers and organizers, and, and I think a lot of us struggle with this, is yeah. people come up and they, they see you working and they say, how can I help? You yeah. need to hand them a shovel. You have one opportunity to fill that need. If you say, you know what, I'll get to you down the line you lose their engagement, mm -hmm. sometimes entirely, sometimes just partially. But every time someone says, how can I help? You have to have a job for them. And that's that's what an organizer does. And an organizer makes themselves, like I said, replaceable so that, you know, if they have to do something else or they get, you know, struck by lightning, the the movement continues. So right. um, in my neighborhood, I, I founded a nightly gathering, um, you know, sort of started off as a protest and vigil um, and it's just become a community gathering every single night um, around, you know, the movement for Black Lives. And it's been almost a year now. And I've had my hands off the wheel for 200 and some days, and it's still going every night. They march through our local park, Carl Schurz Park. Uh, they, they gather, in, you know, and offer eight minutes of silence. Um, to honor honor um, people who've been murdered by police. And right. they also get together and they organize marches and events and support for other issues or other other neighborhoods that need you know bodies on the ground. So to me, that's that's what I've seen work and that's been successful. Um, I'm working to start, I've started a, a mutual aid organization on the Upper East Side. Um, and one of the things that's happening right now is I don't have to have my hand on the wheel for every single um, thing we work on. There are the, the people who, you know, I've, I've started to work with and, you know, have sort of brought into the fold are now running their own events. And there are now, you know, there are park cleanups where I'm not the guy who's at the table who everyone has to check in with. I'm just a guy picking up trash in the park, you know, other people... Yeah are handling things. And that to me is like the biggest lesson I've learned as an organizer. And honestly, the thing, the, the accomplishment I'm proudest of is learning to let go of those, the will to manage and, and, right. and empower other people to lead, you know? Yeah, I mean, it requires setting up some infrastructure and not keeping it all in your head and putting it all on your own uh, shoulders as though you're the, you're the best one for the job. I think sometimes, politicians almost feel like they have to be, you know, front and center in order to maybe show that they're invested mm -hmm. uh, for just the optics. 
if they're not out in the front, how how will the media know that they're really um, invested? But this is just a problem, I guess, with maybe the celebrity culture around politics. Um, it's it's cool to be thinking about you know leading from behind as a mm-hmm. uh, as a way to do politics. Um, so it's really cool to hear your experience with that. Um, yeah, so many you know so many of the people you're probably thinking of the Andrew Cuomo's of the world. Right. will say, where would you be without me? You can't function without me. I'm irreplaceable. Who are you going to replace me with? Who's going to be better than me? And that right. is management. And it's also masochistic. And it's not really a great way to, you know, empower people and, you know, have a have a society where people feel individually empowered. Yeah. I was also curious what your take on uh, just what's considered the left in New York, uh, the difference between someone who identifies as a progressive or a leftist and a DSA member. I sometimes find myself kind of swimming among all these labels and people's self-identification. And to me, they're, they're basically all uh, the same type of person, except for, you know, one really believes more so in socialism. And I guess the others may be still open to capitalism, but most people I know uh, who have those labels identify as socialists. What I think is interesting about this conversation is we can see from a distance as New Yorkers, races that happen in the South. And mm-hmm. we don't dig into the details of what someone is. We just say there's a, there's a, there's a Republican, there's a Democrat or, or someone like Joe Manchin we can take. Joe Manchin is a very conservative Democrat, mm-hmm. but we, hear so many voices in, in, you know, sort of left of center and in the center say, well, you know, you have to take things contextually. Like he is liberal for, I forget where he's from, West Virginia, uh, but he's liberal for where he's from. And we don't invert that argument when we talk about, you know, what we can expect from New York politics. We we accept both as voters and as people who, you know, swim in these waters, a lot of like contextually very conservative, some would say moderate in other parts of the country, but I would call them conservative Democrats who, you know, are, do the same sort of fear mongering, do the same sort of, um, you know, support the same sort of authoritarianism that right. you know we would we might expect of a conservative democrat um but we don't call them conservatives here and contextually they are they are right wing uh, eric right. adams andrew yang they're right wing right. they they don't believe in they don't believe um in empowering people they believe in top down authority and you know criminalizing versus care so right. Back to your question of, of you know, what a leftist progressive uh, DSA member, I mean, DSA is an organization just like being uh, a, right. a card carrying member of Sam's Club is, yeah. is an organization, being in the NRA. Now, yeah. they, they each one of these groups carries some sort of identification, let's say the NRA versus DSA. But um, one one's politics, you know, do not beget the other. There's a there's a circle of associations, perhaps. Right. But there's a lot of they're big tent organizations. So there are you know NRA members who might vote Democrat sometimes. Right. And there are in local elections. Um, and there are DSA members who you know are are you know ready to work within the Democratic Party. And there are those who want to 
um, completely reject electoral politics. And I understand both angles, uh, but right. I would say, you know, you have left, leftism is, um, you know, it's, it's the concept behind leftism is about uh, pushing the Overton window and, you know, further to the left, like further giving more rights to people, like fundamentally, mm -hmm. in, in my opinion, giving more rights and disempowering, you know, oppressive authoritarian, you know, uh, institutions. I would say yeah. progressivism is about, you know, is, is, is a belief that like one can work within these systems to push it forward to progress. But there are a lot of people who identify as progressives who are obstructive to, to progress. I mean, Bill de Blasio calls himself a progressive all the time, and yet he can't seem to be critical of the police to save his life. He right. made one small criticism of police early in his mayoral tea, um, and they, the, you know, he lost support of, he lost support of the, the police and, and um, has been trying to gain it back ever since, even though, you know, he has an authority over them. Um, so, you know, people throw around terms to based, I mean, honestly, like what we as voters identify with is very different than what gets handed out from the consultant class to candidates to what they should say. I mean, yeah. before Scott Stringer was just, uh, you know, outed as a creep, uh, despite many years of many people saying he was, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, kind of a harmful bastard, uh, he, he reinvented himself in recent years as a progressive. And this is someone who for years uh, has been has been in politics for 40 years. And don't mm -hmm. how can he have no like major progressive gold medals around his neck after 40 years as a progressive? The, the fact of the matter is he hasn't been a progressive all these times. He accepted a lot of real estate money. He's, you know, right. heavily responsible for what we now see as the like overarching gentrification of Harlem in the the non-existence of small businesses in and around the 125th street corridor that was all under scott stringer's um leadership and right. he doesn't take any responsibility for that the fact that we gave you know hundreds of millions of dollars to whole foods to build a whole foods on 125th street and got rid of a local gross grocery store that was there um so yeah you know they're flexible terms and they're they're sometimes used to manipulate voters, right i think honestly. especially since you know bernie sanders was so you know successful in his race for uh president i mean compared to the other candidates his brand is probably uh something that other people are eager to write on the coattails of and you know Absolutely. appropriate the language of mm -hmm. um in order to just i guess you know catch people who are not paying too much attention. I think there's a lot of people who who don't want to look too much into the details and would rather look at the, the high level adjectives and uh, branding uh, than the actual policies. Of, people of have a, a fundamental distrust of, yeah. of politics and politicians and rightfully so. Why? Because they, they use these terms to manipulate, goad and guide them and right. try to appeal to overarching beliefs that they don't necessarily ascribe to. Would you consider uh, Yang's UBI, which I know was obviously watered down to the point that it was toothless, um, is a progressive type of policy? Or do you think UBI can go either way, whether it's uh, more on the right or on the left? Um, I think universal basic income as conceived and pushed forward into, into you know, popular terminology by 
Dr. King uh, before he was murdered uh, was a a supplement, was additional to Mm -hmm. social services, to a broad, robust social safety net. Um, And this, this, uh, this pandemic has shown the value of universal basic income. I mean, what was what was the the extension of, of unemployment benefits and in the additional $300, $500 per, right. per week, but uh, UBI. And what it did is it kept the economy afloat. And I heard a report on WNYC today that people who received those extended benefits were actually more likely to end up back in the workforce because they just were, were less destitute, less stressed yeah. out and, 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 you know, Money doesn't equal happiness, but lack of money does equal, uh, you know, anxiety and, and fear and, and stress that, you know, is unnecessary in a, in a wealthy society. So Yang's to Yang's UBI. Yeah. Yang's UBI was about the erasure of public benefits and the replacement of mm-hmm. public benefits with, you know, a, a one-time check. Uh, I don't want to have to calculate how much street space I use every day, how much I use in uh, crosswalk lights, how much I use in clean air, in mm-hmm. washing the toilet, in running water. These are all elements of a public infrastructure that you know someone like Yang seeks to privatize, things that we take for granted and we've taken for granted for generations. Right. He does remind me of almost like the charter school approach uh, to, to government. Uh, that's a institution I'm pretty familiar with. It was my first role out of school as a charter school. I was like, how is it possible that we're receiving all this public funding, yet we don't have um, obligations to serve the entire public? Um, and uh, that just really turned me off from uh, this uh, private industry uh, infecting infecting the public sector in, in theory, because I experienced it in practice. Although yeah. that is, you know, the way most of our uh, government is being run these days. Lots of private one, contractors. Absolutely. And one of the big pandemic things we've done um, is hand over street space and sidewalk space right. to small businesses under the auspices of having to save small businesses and having it be the, the biggest driving force is we've got to save restaurants and we've got to save bars. Well, you know what? The government does absolutely because they've mishandled the situation. Mm-hmm. But what we've done is we've handed over public space to private corp, private companies, small businesses, um, to the expense of, let's say, people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. It's not a man. It's, these spaces aren't managed, and accessibility issues are not are not handled uh, like up to ADA regulations. And it's happening all over the city. And you know, we we as, as the public have like tacitly agreed to this exchange, but we're not receiving benefit back. We're not receiving complete accessibility for all back. And I think that is a prime example um, of how easily we, we, we give away so many of our rights for the sake of, of private businesses yeah. under public-private partnerships. And we get emotionally manipulated into doing so. I mean, we were emotionally manipulated. Like we've got to save oh, your favorite restaurant. You have to order food from them. Right. Like, I get what you're saying, but everyone's broke right now. Right. And small businesses aren't some great, like a small business owner does not necessarily have great politics and does not necessarily not 
abuse their staff and does not right. necessarily pay a fair wage. You know, we right. still live on, in a world where for the past 30 years, minimum wage for a server is $2 and 15, 13 cents an hour. And, right. and, and restaurants will gladly, you know, adhere to that minimum wage, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a pittance when you don't have people coming in. Right. Right. I wanted to ask you too, what you think about um, the legalization of weed in New York that just happened recently and how you see this affecting, um, I guess, the communities here who've, um, I guess, been criminalized for this behavior uh, or this like very normal consumption habit. Do you see yeah. there's a path forward for uh, decriminalizing or reversing the convictions? of people uh, i do see that there's a path forward but um i wonder again if private business interests are gonna get in the way and make it you know sort of like in for the sake of expediency uh make it so that we don't push forth in in terms of equity i mean we're 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 creating a new business stream that's like profitable to the tune of billions and billions you know probably a month yeah uh under in, in the context of living in a world where black and brown Americans, women, uh, black women can't mm -hmm. start a business, they can't get business loans at the same rate as white men, mm -hmm. uh, it's still the same world. So, you know, these terms, the terms of equity, as they've been laid out, don't sound super promising. Um, I'm hoping for the best, but I'm preparing for the worst. Uh, and I think it's going to be a long path um, because we've only just recently you know, gotten people to start talking openly about marijuana consumption and, and it's safe, it's relative safety. Yeah. Um, we had, you know, the, a debate, a uh, mayoral debate where you know, just about everyone was asked if they had ever used marijuana. And uh, I feel like most of the candidates lied and yeah. Diane Morales got dragged for saying she prefers edibles. And to me, that yeah. was like, the the um epitome of integrity to 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 be honest with the public right what's your thought on diane morales i i feel like she hasn't been organized enough around in the city that she should have yeah. had more money and more publicity uh, than she's had yeah well the matching funds program i think is going to do well for her um but she didn't qualify for matching funds uh, okay. until relatively late compared to people like Scott Stringer, or Eric Adams, who've been probably fundraising for, you know, many years uh, for right. these mayoral runs. However, she has qualified and um, I am seeing a higher presence. There was a recent poll that had her third place uh, with 12% support underneath um, Yang and Adams. We've still got a lot of voters uh, who are completely uninformed. We've still got a lot of time. And honestly, at this point in 2013, I think Anthony Weiner was still in the running for, for, the, for the mayorship. And, uh, you know, Bill de Blasio eked by with a very small number of votes. And I, I honestly think in this case, if she's running, in if she's in third place with for 50 days to go until election day. Um, I think she has a serious shot in a world where ranked choice voting exists. I right. think, you know, can she become the second choice for Yang and Adams voters? If those two are at each other's throat to such a degree, I think that's a possibility. That's cool. I um, Who's who's in the lead right now, Yang? Um, I think Yang and Eric Adams are tied. 
Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough president and former top cop. Uh huh. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. yeah. When are when are elections this year? Um, Summer. Uh, June. Yeah, June twenty second, and early voting starts. I think the tenth, and they're about to print and send out the absentee ballots. So. Ha uh ha. -huh. It's very. It's coming up on us. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll definitely add some uh, resources so people can educate themselves. Yeah. Based on, you know, my friend's social media, I've leaned more towards Morales. I was optimistic that maybe some of our infrastructure issues could be solved by someone who's used to making more efficient systems like Yang is. But because I'm just I frustrated by how the, the subway mm -hmm. does feel like, yeah. you know, uh, that is well, such I a vital tissue in any urban environment that I, I'm so eager to see that modernized. Infrastructure is deeply important, but I think someone like Yang, who you know leans towards business interests and privatization, right. is the, is, is going to send us down the wrong path. And there have been a lot of um, there's been a lot of good reporting around Yang showing the sort of fallacy of our ideas of him as like a, a successful businessman. Uh, I believe it. I don't know if it was the Times, but it was a, a recent article showing that uh, he had promised in a, in a he had received a big grant. And he had promised a hundred thousand jobs and created a hundred jobs. Uh -huh. um, so he's not really the. And I think the, the the myth of the business owner as the job creator is something we need to tackle as a society in a different conversation. But right, um, I I really think that uh, you know there's a lot of myth making around Andrew Yang. The Andrew Yang who like cleverly ran for president um, on a whim is not the same guy who's currently running for mayor. Um, he's he's garnering a lot of support from very conservative people. And yeah. last night, um, he got support from Donald Trump Jr., from mm -hmm. uh, Ted Cruz, from uh, uh, Stephen Miller for his very problematic uh, messaging around um, the current bombing of Palestinians by the Israeli uh, government. Right. I was going to ask you about that. That felt so left field. I don't understand why he even would it's, be motivated yeah. to discuss uh, Israel while he's running for New York City mayor, if not other than to signal to conservatives or those type of interests where where he will stay mm -hmm. allegiant. He's you know? working very hard recently to get the vote of conservative Jews because yeah. a lot of rabbis in those communities manage to <clears throat> motivate their voters as a single block. Right. And it's not a ton of people, but having uh, those votes secured in the way that they're secured, um, you know, your rabbi tells you who to vote for and you vote for them. And, you know, you've seen the, you've seen the images of these uh, big parties, these illegal parties and funerals over the summer. There yeah. are a lot of people uh, who these rabbis can influence. Um, right. So he was recently endorsed by two conservative, two big figures in the uh, conservative Orthodox Jewish community. And he's, 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 he's signaling to them, really. That's interesting. Um, Zionism has become, you know, uh, celebrates death in yeah. a way. It's, it's become a death cult and yeah. it's really troubling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I struggle to understand how anybody can just completely overlook what's happening to the Palestinian people. I, I don't know. Yeah, but at the same time, we live in America where we've completely overlooked what's happened to black and brown Americans and it's still happening. Right. So, <laughs> you know, Right. I kind of get it. I kind of get how that can happen in a society. <laughs> I know, I know.
I also wanted to ask you about uh, something that's dear to my heart as well as many other freelancers. Uh, I recently had an issue where a client didn't pay me for work that I had completed. Mm -hmm. Certainly large amount, but the process for getting wages back is pretty, uh, it's a job in and of itself. Mm -hmm. It probably takes just as long as, you know, the work uh, took me. Um, What are your thoughts around like wage theft uh, as a problem in in the city and in general? Yeah, I mean, it's a big problem for, you know, anyone, uh, you know, sort of below a certain management level. Absolutely. And there's, you know, there was a freelance isn't free act that was passed in, I think, 2016 Mm. to support um, New Yorkers to aid New Yorkers in in create penal a penalty fee for uh, employers who didn't pay their freelancers. But the whole process of this 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 whole bureaucratic process requires so much you know negotiation litigation it can take so long that it doesn't right. yeah it doesn't put the money in your pocket that you you you're relying on for your freelance work. I think wage theft happens you know again because we devote so much energy to empowering business owners because you know every elected official has to have something positive to say about small business i'm starting to become honestly an anti-small business leftist not only because of the uh because of the issues around open restaurants and outdoor dinings and using a private space but there are so many small business owners who are very abusive towards their towards their workers and you know yeah with impunity yeah, large corporations protect themselves, so they throw money at issues. So they'll throw money at a freelancer in an effort to make them go away because they don't want the bad publicity. But there's no really bad publicity that's going to happen to a, a super small like boutique agency or boutique company that screws somebody over. Right. I mean, it'll be a little bit of word of mouth, but it won't really impact them down the line. And you're not going to get you're not going to be able to go to the press with this story, you know? Right. Because they're not a notable name, so they can get away with a lot. But, um, you know, wage theft happens for a lot of reasons, too. I think there's a sort of cult of, uh, of hustling. There's a cult of, um, how would you say it? Uh, I don't know, um, like that you're supposed to devote your, your life to work, that you're supposed to be a part of a family at work. And this wage theft happens in ways that are sort of nefarious, you know, uh, people right. who you know, management who demands that workers be, you know, accessible by email and by phone over the weekend or on their vacation days, their time off. Wage theft also happens in, uh, in politics too, in political campaigns. So when someone runs for re-election, they might have staff that has paid time off, but they're, they're expected to use that paid time off in order to volunteer for the campaign, not really volunteering, for the re-election campaign, because you're supposed to draw these these sort of you know lines between being an elected official and, and being paid by the state and campaigning. There's supposed to be mm-hmm. this hard border in between them, and that's managed by a lot of people in office by you know pressuring their staffers to right. to put in extra hours that they're not compensated for. So right. it's it's endemic in every industry, unfortunately, even the political industry. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely pretty bonkers. That interesting, that line between wage theft and time theft and the hyper-connectedness of the modern workplace, it really does feel run amok. I mean, unfortunately, I feel like technology is always ahead of our 
ways of moderating its ethics and its imp impact on people. And you know, who's to say it's it's unethical to um, contact your you know worker at 9 p.m. But uh, it's like a slippery slope regarding expectations and mental health and the well-being of a society in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really, you know, yearn for the days where we were less, less connected. Um, and unfortunately, I think it seems like we might just have to like write into law some, some like mandatory period of, you know, not obligating yeah. your full-time worker to work. Um, I've heard so of this many, happening. In, so many in roles are too. nine to five, like 40 hour mm -hmm. work weeks, but really it's 80 hour work week. Mm-hmm. You I've know. heard of this this happening though, where people are introducing legislation or introducing um, local laws that you know prohibit employers. Um, but also, how do you control that if you're if right. you work for Google from New York, you know? Right. Uh, so it's it's really, I mean, these have to be like federal laws, and then you're dealing also with international companies. Uh, who the hell knows where yeah. you start with this? I'm not a lawyer. Um, but you know, it really is a cultural shift, and 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 I think there there needs to be a sort of dismantling of the sort of um, kill it. You know, this term "kill a cop in your head." <laughs> you need to right. kill the the manager in your head too. That tells you you need to hustle. Hustling culture is very damaging, and the people who right. perpetuate it, honestly, are are often, you know, people who who are privileged in a lot of ways. You know it's hard for lower income people to like, you know, break into so many of these industries where you have to hustle or work for free. I mean, I mean, internships are wage theft, you know, right. uh, you know, low income positions where you have to work up the totem pole are wage theft. I mean, there's a, there's a form of wage theft. I was listening to a story that was about, you know, someone who was being paid cash under the table because they wanted to like break out into like the theater industry but they were paid cash under the table at a small, you know, improv theater or something like that. And, you know, while there's a charm to it, we really need to unpack like how toxic that is, you know? Right, right. I do often think, and this makes me sound like a conservative person, but I wonder <laughs> if there's just generally like a cultural deprioritization um, especially among like the, you know, upper middle class of, you know, the value of community and family as like a place to draw value from or to prioritize. It seems like it's become uh, chic to like not prioritize those things if you're wealthy, which is interesting to me because mm -hmm. you would think the wealthier groups are the ones who, who would have the like time and resources to devote to, to things outside of work. But it seems like lower classes are, you know, able to, I guess, maintain a primacy on the family, at least psychologically. Maybe that's due to certain like religious practices or what have you, but it's been confusing to me to see um, just like the difference in like family values along mm. class. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there definitely that? is, but there's also the element of, you know, people who, who are having kids now uh, I mean, lower income people just aren't having kids, lower middle income people, because it's too expensive. You need to be able to um, pay into some level of a servant class. I mean, you know, what is Uber? What are all these apps? But like, you know, small snackable uh, experiences of being in, you know, you know, where the servant class is beholden to you. Right. Um, but, you know, People can't, yeah, people can't afford it. Um, and so yeah. wealthier people can make 
can make that time, they can build a family and right. they can pay somebody to handle their family. They can pay somebody to take care of their family and, and yeah. you know, they get to still have all the freedoms of, right. you know, of, of living. Um, it's an alienated conception though, where like everybody's like separate. Although everybody yeah. has the resource, there's very little time spent together because everybody's working or at activities yeah. or being managed by some other company. Uh, yeah, I mean, that. whether it's the phenomenon of, of people, you know, adopting dogs instead of having kids or right. you know i mean there's there's a want for these things you're 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 on something interesting because there there's a there's a desire for these these kinds of connections but it's just inaccessible so you wonder what right. will become of that i mean people have friendships that like or or groups of friends that have become more and more like family i think right um you know so I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we adapt, <laughs> we yeah. find a way. And there's but, definitely um, multiple ways to define family. I just find it interesting the way yeah. it's, it's grown over time and how it relates to the economy, you know? Mm -hmm. And another thought I was thinking of the other day, which is uh, delivery people. I often find myself as I ride a bike, you know, blown away. Yeah, we're talking about apps and essential, right. An essential part of somebody's, uh, you know, work is to basically put themselves uh in you know the line of like death every day um is there any like legislation you know of towards you know protecting these workers who are uh strapped to their bikes yeah i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of different ideas i'm i'm actually working i'm meeting on friday with um the borough director of um, the department of transportation uh in manhattan to talk about uh, making permanent an open street uh, in my neighborhood, there are a couple of like credible candidates who have a shot at winning uh, in city council races who are talking about things like turning Third Avenue into a 50-50 corridor for bikes and pedestrians and for cars. I mean, if you go up and down Third Avenue, it's six lanes wide and it's never a parking lot. You know what I mean? It's never right. completely packed. So you could conceivably take two lanes away and, and make it pedestrian traffic safely and um, you know, really change the change the face of the city, Very right through the center of Manhattan. Um, you know, a lot of it is about. I think I, you know, I think there's a lot of resistance to to you know protected bike lanes mm -hmm. because people have this expectation. I mean, though, you know, the worst thing that's happened to that happens to you know a generation is they become used to something toxic or problematic, and and people have become very used to. Um, a very toxic relationship with cars. They think the street is for cars and the sidewalk mm -hmm. is for pedestrians. And if you walk in the street, you are wrong and you deserve harm. <laughs> like, right. you know, you've earned harm. And it's really a troubling set of associations or a troubling path of thought. Right. You lead somebody there, but it's super common. Right. Um, and I think a lot of it is about changing changing streets but that doesn't happen through legislative changes not usually uh, what happens happen? is like local community boards like local people get together they go to their community board they petition they talk to their many transportation or, or transportation alternative um, organizations throughout the city and they organize with these groups and slowly put bike lanes in like one block at a time and it's painstaking um right that's what made open streets so revolutionary because the you know our city government was saying you know what let's just let's just give all this over back to the people to to walk on 
Um, it's kind of amazing. One issue though that you brought up um, related to delivery workers was bathrooms. And that yeah. is one of the biggest, I think that you could run a campaign on public restrooms and open container and right. win anywhere in the city. <laughs> Because yeah. to me, what is waste management but infrastructure? Right. What is sewage but infrastructure? What is mm -hmm. plumbing but infrastructure? Every major city on the planet has accessible bathrooms throughout right. the, especially throughout the most populated areas. We have nothing and we put it on like private businesses, on small businesses to like manage it and then tell people they don't have access to their privileged bathroom. Right. Because we don't have public infrastructure for it. We need to create public restrooms. There's, it's, it's a major accessibility issue that hits everybody. Right. I mean, if you have, let's say, let's say you're, you're working, you need to go. Where do you go? Let's say you have a disability that requires you to use the bathroom frequently. Where do you go? Let's mm -hmm. say you're a parent with kids. Where do you go? Let's say you're elderly. Where do you go? Like, there's no place for us to go. And I think one of the biggest things the pandemic has revealed to me, especially personally, like when I go out, like, you know, if so I go like down to lower Manhattan sometimes on a weekend and I don't know what's going to be open. I don't know if I'm going to have access to a bathroom. And it's like a new anxiety that I have. It's like, right. oh, I better stop at this Starbucks or I better stop here, you know, because who knows if there's going to be a bathroom on the other end of this, you know, of this walk. It's really, it's a very human thing. Uh, and right. it's, it's infrastructure. Right. It's everyone. And we need to, we need to have that conversation in a big way and really put like a plan together for public restrooms in this city. It's fucking ridiculous that 150 years into the existence of the city, we didn't come up with public restrooms. Because yeah. every other major city has them. They're self-cleaning. They're nice. They're automated. Yeah. They're 24 hours. They're beautiful. Like I lived in Berlin for a year and a half. And they're really beautiful public restrooms. At the door, the whole thing rotates. And then you go in. And then like if you're in there too long, it like opens up after 20 oh, wow. minutes. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. It, it like self-sprays. It cleans itself. It's like, wow. it's so incredibly easy. Yeah, that's, I don't know. One of the things that baffles me. I know there's the the lack of uh, investment in our domestic uh, services is it's very odd. I almost feel sometimes that there's like a culture of trying to keep Americans in the past while telling us that we're the best in the world, so that we don't really question or compare uh, yeah. ourselves to other developed nations. Because in so many ways, we are really you know behind. Half my family is German, and they they almost treat me as though I was living just a very uh, challenging life. I feel very blessed. I have a lot of privileges, but, you know, compared to other developed nations, you know, we really don't have the basics covered. Yeah. I mean, myth-making is a powerful thing. I mean, that's how we get these presidents right. that should not be president and potentially a mayor that should not be a mayor. I know. Uh, myth-making is a toxic drug, and but we love it. You know, we love to make stories. We love to tell stories. We love to hear stories. Right. A story is much more interesting than the facts. I mean, the facts are boring. The facts are you go to your community board and organize with people and then maybe you get a, a bike lane for two blocks, you know, right. that's boring. But the guy who says he's going to come in and like reinvent everything and he's got all the tools to do it, you know, he frames yeah. the story the right way. It's much more appealing. Right. Understood. So for your next campaign, 2022, 
how, how are you approaching things the same and how are you approaching things differently? Yeah. Uh, how am I approaching things the same? Well, I'm not changing my values. Right. I'm not changing anything that I plan to do because the incumbent hasn't done shit. Um, right. She still supports Cuomo. Uh, she still supports uh, the NYPD. Um, she still supports a lot of the damaging policies that have failed us during the pandemic. So I don't really got to change a whole There's lot. There's not much to respect. change. Nice. But, you know, what I'm doing now is I'm organizing inside the community just more and more. I'm not thinking of things in terms of like, oh, will someone see me and this get me elected? I'm just doing boring work shoulder to shoulder with my neighbors um, and earning trust one person at a time. And I'm just, you know, I'm so present in like in the neighborhood that like at some point I feel like, you know, there's people who are going to be like, just give this guy a fucking job, man. <laughs> he's just, he's been asking for it, you know? That's really cool. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat. And of course, Sarah. Thank I you enjoyed for asking picking me to... your brain on yeah, what's yeah. up and in, in NYC politics or New York state politics. Yeah, anytime. It's a mess. We could talk about it for another hour easily. I know. Anytime. I hope we can do that maybe sometime. We could do a recap of the election if you want. Hey, 